Hello, hello, and welcome to Think Business Futures. I'm your host, Max Tillman, coming to you from the studios of 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation and right across Australia on the Community Radio Network. This program is produced in association with the UTS Business School, and each week we take a closer look at the numbers that make up the news. It was Friedrich Nietzsche, the late 19th century nihilist, who said happiness is the feeling that power increases, an appropriately cynical proposition from a man who also said God was dead. But Friedrich, most likely Fred to his friends, raises a few very interesting points. Do we need to be successful to be happy? And how long does that happiness last? We all know big life events like marriage, parenthood, job loss and the death of a loved one can affect our well-being. But by how much and for how long? Dr Nathan Kettlewell is a postdoctoral research fellow with the Economics Discipline Group at the University of Technology, Sydney. He and a group of researchers from the University of Sydney set out to measure the effect of major life events, 18 in total, on well-being. To do so, they used a sample of about 14,000 Australian adults tracked over 16 years. Some of their results were expected, others were surprising. Dr Kettlewell joins us today to talk about this study. Thank you very much for coming on the show. It's the big stopovers on the road to life that you're ultimately investigating, marriage, parenthood, financial wins, financial losses, and the death of those you love. But yourself and your research partners sought to discover how long we dwell upon the good and the bad moments in our lives. So just to start off the discussion, how did you conduct this study? Yes, we conducted this study using a longitudinal data set. That's a data set that tracks Australian households over 16 years. We used the, we, we, we had data on, on, on households over 16 years and we measured well-being from people's self-assessed levels of you know, sort of positive and negative emotions each year as well as their uh, level of life satisfaction. So that was that was kind of the outcome. So the outcome was very much delineated from the the events that we were looking at. We just wanted to see how those well-being measures uh, basically changed in response to those events. Mm. And your study distinguished two different aspects of what we believe constitutes well-being, happiness and life satisfaction. Now, you say in your research that other researchers often treat these as the same thing, but in fact, they're very different. So can you please give a bit of an explanation as to where that difference lies? Yeah, so when we think about happiness, it's probably easier to think about that as, as kind of like people's mood um, or in, I guess, like the, the kind of technical um, terminology would be positive or negative effect, effect being kind of yeah, mood or emotions. And when we think about life satisfaction, we're generally thinking more about people's kind of cognitive appraisals of the state of their life which tends to be more goal-orientated. So, for example, um, you can easily imagine somebody who's very satisfied with their life because they have, you know, a really nice house, um, you know, the family's doing well and so forth. So they're very um, satisfied with what they have, but they might be quite unhappy. You know, they might not be very emotionally fulfilled. They might be depressed and so forth. And so it's kind of easy to come up with scenarios where those two things might differ. You know, and but but as as we kind of point out, a lot of the time they're treated kind of interchangeably. Mm. And do you think that that brings a lot of 
problems in the way that we do evaluate satisfaction and happiness in the sense that maybe we're not necessarily, and this obviously goes back to the academia, you've said that there are many researchers that don't treat them independently. And I can imagine that if academics aren't treating them independently, your average Australian isn't maybe not going to be making that distinction between if they're happy or if they're satisfied. So do you think that it has implications on how people view themselves? Do you think it's hard for people to understand that, as you said, there is that distinction between getting a great job and living a fulfilling life? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, I think a lot of the time people are probably driven more by, well, you know, we're driven by the things that we want to achieve. So our, our goals and, you know, clearly that might be a path towards satisfaction. Mm-hmm. But if we're also worried about our happiness, then it might not be the right path towards that goal. Um, so that's one of the, the kind of implications. And I guess, you know, the other is if we're thinking about, for example, clinicians who might be psychologists, for example, might be like treating patients and that are kind of basing their practice on the evidence, then it's important to know what the outcome variable was. For example, you know, treating sort of emotional problems is going to be different to treating dissatisfaction with with one's life. So it also matters in that sense too. And do you think that, as we've already sort of alluded to, that the failure to distinguish the two maybe has people essentially going to possibly treat their happiness when it's an issue of life satisfaction or vice versa? Yeah, I mean, I, I, th- I think that's entirely likely. You know, anecdotally, we all know about people who, who really, ch- I mean, probably from our own lives as well, you know, we chase, we chase satisfaction. You know, we chase, you know, these goals that I guess we think will make us happy, maybe, but, but maybe the motivation for that isn't really related to happiness. Mm. And you say in the beginning of your report that you describe the culture that we live in as valuing experiences above all else. And one thing that you particularly allude to is that the culture that we live in, particularly with these sort of engines of social media um, in which experience is the currency, that it does somewhat warp that understanding of, of where you derive pleasure and happiness and satisfaction from. So it's something that is being sold to us, as you say, as being the fashionable answer to true happiness in some regards. So was that something that obviously you had to take into consideration with your research? Obviously, you establish a pool of individuals in which to gain your data from, but how big an influence was these sort of cultural factors in in determining your results? Yeah, so I mean, I don't think... So those cultural factors obviously affect the the context, you know, so, you know, that could potentially be driving people's choices, like influencing people's choices. And if that's their motivation, if they're being nudged to do things because of, you know, media or, I don't know, maybe like family values, you know, maybe people are getting married because, you know, it's not intrinsically something that they're like desiring at that point in time, but they feel pressured to do it. I, I don't know. But if obviously those motivations form the context and that context informs the kind of results that we're likely to get. I mean, so like that, that kind of point about, um, about, you know, I guess not chasing experiences is also linked to the fact that, you know, what we sort of found in our study was that, you know, these positive events that, that occur in people's lives, they can shift your happiness or your life satisfaction temporarily, but those, those effects are very much temporary. Would you say that, amongst other things, this modern quest for experience has prioritized satisfaction over happiness? Uh, yeah, I don't know if I'd go like that far. I mean, I think 
like I, you know, it, I mean, it depends on what the experiences are. Like I think maybe probably like some of the experiences that we're looking at in our study. So these are kind of like big life experiences, like moving a house or um, yeah, like getting married on the, the sort of negative side, the things like divorce uh, on the positive side, having children. So I think those sort of decisions, absolutely. Like they tend to be sort of life goal decisions. Uh, they're not everything that we looked at kind of fits that category. Things like, you know, going on a holiday, obviously that's chasing an experience. I'm not sure if people do that for satisfaction or because they think that's going to bring temporary happiness. Um, so I don't think it's, I don't think it's a universal driver, you know, satisfaction or happiness. I think they both probably uh, influence different types of experiences. And do you think that there's an element of social conditioning as to what does, as to what major life events are worth being happy about? As you mentioned in your research, right after the birth of a child, parents are more satisfied, but they're less happy. Obviously, that can be for many reasons, those sort of early mornings, very little sleep. But do you think that it implies that satisfaction could be just as instinctual uh, as it can be derived from a great job or a shiny new car? Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's I think that's a pretty reasonable interpretation of that. And is that something that yourself and other researchers picked up on between satisfaction being the sort of environmental factors of our lives and happiness being those things that like childbirth and sort of partnership that are kind of intrinsic to the human experience? I'm an economist, um so I tend to sort of you know, be interested in the impact of things on these measures. Mm. Um, but there's definitely been a lot of work into understanding, you know, how they're, how those measures themselves are, are informed. I think it's interesting, obviously, with your economic background, understandings of happiness and satisfaction are very different. And in the case of grief, uh, which is obviously at the complete opposite end of the life cycle to the one that we're currently talking about, your research has found that even after an extremely bad event, such as the death of a spouse, people's well-being generally recovers in two to three years. Now, did that revelation at all surprise you that, I'm not saying it's certainly the quickest turnaround, but two to three years, did that seem like a, a short time span when the research came back in? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it surprised me a bit. I mean, we've seen this in other studies as well, that even, you know, from, you know, really terrible circumstances like well-being subjective well-being tends to, to bounce back and often remarkably quickly so so i definitely wasn't surprised to see that pattern like personally i i, I would have expected it would it would take longer but i mean i guess there's a there's a couple of things here to to sort of point out one is that you know we're estimating average effects um and so you know the fact that we do find sort of on average people return to baseline after that two to three year period doesn't preclude other people from having obviously a prolonged longer effect. Um, so that's, that's one thing. And the other is that um, for, for, for some of these events and, and bereavements, one of them, you know, you see that some of the negative, so some of the sort of drop in well-being actually occurs before the event itself. And, you know, that's because, you know, often um, the death of a spouse comes after a sustained illness and at that point, um, you know, you've had a, like potentially you've had quite a while to, to kind of prepare for that and to um, and to sort of, you know, adapt to that change already. And so the, the kind of base, it's not entirely clear what the baseline period is from that event. So, you know, it might be two to three years after the death that we see subjective well-being 
going back to you know the the level it was at before that event, but but obviously people may have been internally adapting for a lot longer than that. Mm. And as an economist, do you see a corresponding dip or rise in some of the other economic indicators, indicators like uh, wages and productivity, um, during or at the same time as these major life events? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, obviously, yeah, those are those are potential kind of channels for why. I mean, those yeah, those are things that can actually in themselves change well-being as well. Um, at the same time as the event, so they can be channels. So they can be the things that you know you have a you have a health shock. You then uh, need to take time off work, and so um, so you have both maybe a direct effect on your well-being from the the low the health shock as well as an indirect effect with the loss in income. And and we do see those those things. So I mean, our study was kind of abstracting from those like second order effects. But, but yeah, absolutely. Um, there's, a, there's a lot that happens around these events. And I, this next question is sort of broadly philosophical, but I'd still like you to um, to have a think about it. So the obviously we live in a very rapidly moving world and at the pace at which life now moves, have we possibly accelerated the natural process of grief? Um, and ultimately what I'm asking is do we grieve less now than we did in the past, because I can imagine you were somewhat surprised by the revelations from your research, as was I, and I can imagine a lot of other people who have read this report would agree that seeing that, and of course, on average, and this is just a pool, a sample pool of people, but to generally recover within two to three years after such a traumatic event, particularly the death of a spouse, to some people may seem quite shocking. Um, So do you think that our natural human reactions have been somewhat compressed and accelerated as life has suddenly shifted into a new gear over the last 20 or 30 years? That's a, that's a really interesting question. Um, I mean, I, I, I can only speculate on the answer to that. I'm, I'm not aware of any sort of um, comparison in, in, you know, how the, the, the kind of time to grieve has, has changed. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I, my sense is that, you know, there's probably more loneliness and isolation today than there used to be. You know, I think it's certainly um, connectedness within communities has kind of been on a, appears to have been on a downward trajectory. And so, you know, to the extent that that's related to the grieving process, I, I would have maybe thought it would be the other way, um, that, you know, you would have sort of less support. Now, I can imagine that this hedonic treadmill is different for everyone, but can you explain the term a little bit more? Yeah, so the, the hedonic treadmill um, comes from this uh, model of, uh, of well-being. Um, it's kind of sometimes referred to as the set point theory model of well-being. Um, and uh, that basically um, says that, you know, every individual has their own innate set point level of, of well-being. So we're thinking about like a life satisfaction scale. Most people answer somewhere between seven or eight, but some people obviously um, give different answers. And the idea is that, you know, you have one level, one answer that um, that is just innately true to you and it's invariant over time. Um, and so when we see changes happening over time, um, those changes will always be temporary. They're always going to come back to your set point 
um, level of uh, level of happiness and level of subjective well-being. Um, and that happens through some kind of process of, of adaptation. It's biological or social. Um, and so I guess the, uh, the, the, the disappointing thing about that is that, you know, when we have these good events, like things like marriage, um, it seems seem to increase our subjective well-being and our happiness. That affects temporary because, you know, the hedonic treadmill kicks in and we can't keep going forward. We come back to our set point. The, uh, the good news is that, you know, the same thing obviously happens when it comes to bad events. Um, so there's that, you know, there's a symmetry there. Um, so we've already talked about the effect of, you know, losing a spouse, but it's, you know, we see the same sort of pattern with health shocks and with uh, financial losses. You know, people have a, have a drop in well-being, but they go back to their set point. So that's the, uh, that's the hedonic. And do you think that's somewhat of a sobering reality? to realize that at some point, no matter how either wonderful or terrible the event may be, that you will inevitably return to a, a level of equilibrium? I hope so, yeah. I mean, yeah, I think, I think it is. Like it's, you know, because obviously at the, um, you know, when you're experiencing those, those big negative feelings, um, you know, after something goes, goes really wrong in your life, I think it's, it's probably, it probably doesn't feel that way. Um, a lot of the time. Uh, so hopefully it's comforting to know that, you know, on average, you know, people are pretty resilient to, uh, to stuff that happens to them. Obviously it's, it's always really important, I think, to caveat this stuff, you know, on the, you know, to, to remind people that, you know, these, these effects are, are on average. And so you know, any individual can have a different experience. Um, and, and obviously, you know, we need to be careful about that because, you know, we shouldn't just assume that people will, return to baseline um, after bad events. You know, there'll be some people who, who won't and you know, we need to support those people. And speaking of that, in the current circumstances that we all live in where everyone is essentially echoing the same message that there is a new normal of life uh, in which we all have to find some level of familiarity or comfort, um, now will that potentially shift this baseline of the hedonic treadmill uh, to which we will all ultimately return once COVID ends. Because as we've obviously heard over the last few months and at the show here, we've covered it extensively, there's an enormous amount of financial insecurity. Uh, I can imagine a huge issue will be the disruption of the work-life balance and, of course, the physical isolation to boot. And people are talking about this understanding of collective grief uh, and collective unhappiness, which can clearly be related to your work. So do you think that we'll potentially shift that baseline after COVID-19 and, and the level to which we all return will be fundamentally changed by what we've experienced? Yeah, look, at, yeah, that's a really good, I mean, a really important question um, at the moment. So, I mean, I'm, I'm, I would hope that we will return to some level closer to, to, to where we were at before this all happened. Like, but, you know, every, obviously it's been said a million times, you know, this is an unprecedented period. And so it's really hard to, you know, there's no counterfactual for, for, for what we're experiencing right now. Um, and there's not, you know, there's, there's kind of no evidence to, to, to look at. There is evidence around, you know, the effect of some life events, like for example, uh, unemployment um, for people who then stay unemployed. And, 
Um, and that suggests that you can sort of stay in a more prolonged state of kind of negative well-being um, in that, you know, in those circumstances. And so I guess that's kind of a, a concern that, you know, if this COVID situation um, leads to a, an entirely new state of the world where people have this heightened level of health insecurity, job insecurity, you know, that could have some permanent um, shifting effect on, on our well-being. On our well-being. And do you um, think that, um, yeah. if I may just interject for a moment, that do you think yes. that when we think about like Maslow's hierarchy of needs and in the modern world that we live in where security and safety and the sort of physiological needs are generally looked after, at least in a country like Australia, uh, and therefore self-actualization and self-fulfillment become the primary concerns for most people, uh, do you think that we could essentially, at the end of this, be flipping Maslow's hierarchy of needs on its head and, and once again looking at the fundamentals as things that people are trying to fulfill in their lives, like that sense of security and, and shelter, as as funny as it sounds in a country like Australia. But do you think that that could start to become the priority again? Yeah, dude, that's an interesting thought. Um, yeah, look, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I hope it doesn't come to that, you know, to that to that point like you know i think that you know i'm I'm hopeful that we can sort of come through this without that level of of disruption um i think for sure there's going to be there's going to be a lot of uncertainty and uncertainty leads to stress and so that's that's going to be a really important thing for for people to sort of focus on and for whatever groups are out there you know governments um or for agencies and so forth i can't imagine you would have anticipated what has happened over the last few months when you began the sort of preliminary research for this study. And I can imagine that you'd be very interested in potentially seeing how much your data and results would have changed since this has happened. If you could put yourself in those hypothetical shoes and imagine what the report would look like if you'd collated your data during COVID-19, what are some of the big differences you think would be there? Yeah, so, I mean, I think we all anticipate that people's kind of, I mean, I think that probably the collective level of, um, of, uh, of, of life satisfaction, subjective well-being is probably lower at the moment um, than it was pre-COVID. Well, there you go. We've had to face some stark truths in today's episode. From Dr. Kettlebell's research, we can almost grasp a quantitative basis for the theory espoused by every bad friend after a breakup that time heals all wounds. And hey, maybe they're right. But can the same be said for us after COVID-19? The hedonic treadmill may have upped the incline and tripled the speed. So what will the baseline happiness look like after all this is over? Once again, thank you to today's guests and of course, everyone listening in. You can find the full show wherever you get your podcasts and make sure to tell your friends. I've been your host, Max Tillman. I'll see you again next week.